0: Hello and welcome to this week's cast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Jonathan Seal, who is the boss at Regal London. Jonathan, great to see you. Thank you for coming in. And this is the first time we've ever had Regal on any of the, uh, the PropCasts over the last four and a half years. So, what's made you come down? Well,
1: pleasure to meet you, Andrew, and thanks for inviting me. I suppose, um, kind of, come down here today to tell you a little bit more about kind of what we've been up to over the last few years. It's obviously been a very kind of different environment coming through COVID. And we're here to tell you a bit more about Regal London.
0: And in terms of your journey, so you're not a property man through and through like a lot of people who have sat in that chair. You've done other things, which are interesting and exciting. And you've been with the business since 2015 and you joined initially as a non-exec. Maybe give us a bit of colour on your own background, just to start with. Because people, you know, a lot of people will, will have their perceptions of Regal. Uh, a lot of people may not know you too well. So let's maybe spend the first few minutes talking about that.
1: Sure. So, um, I mean, the earlier part of my career, I'd probably describe myself as a professional entrepreneur. Um, I grew up trying to come up with a great idea, but realized that the great idea was never going to materialize and that actually gaining professional qualifications and different levels of experience was the way that I'd be able to create those ideas. So, you know, studied history and economics at university and, and then went to law school. Qualified as a M&A mergers and acquisitions lawyer, specializing in buying and selling companies as a lawyer. Yeah. And then transcended from there into the M&A investment banking world. So kind of moved as a corporate lawyer to investment banker, specializing in buying and selling unquoted private companies. And it's in that period of time where I really learned about companies and how they operate.
0: So what were some of the deals that you're involved with?
1: Well, I suppose uh, you know, one deal that springs to mind is I sold the UK's second largest bowling business called AMF Bowling. Which those who remember, there was a chain of uh, bowling alleys that were owned by an American outfit who effectively had gone into liquidation, and the UK assets needed to be sold. So, um, you know, that was you know, a very interesting experience having bought and sold a lot of companies mm. um, at the age of kind of 26, 27. And at that point, I wanted to move into the investing community. And I successfully, with some colleagues, raised a fund on, on the stock market in, in 2008 which was a growth capital fund. What does that mean? It means kind of investing in businesses and working with management teams to effectively create a a sale of that business to return on your investment. Interesting
0: time to be doing anything like that. Yeah. So How how did you get that away?
1: So it was just prior to the uh, Lehman's collapse, Uh, uh, where there was quite a lot of appetite. And this was in June 2008, uh, before Lehman's, which was, as you recall, in August 2008. So we had so raised. So you're a genius or just lucky? We got lucky and, <laughs> and, and we raised some capital, and obviously the world looked like. Everything
0: got 50% cheaper after that. So, play yeah. to you.
1: Yeah. So it was a good time. But from there, when I moved out the listed environment, I moved into private equity, managing funds and investing into businesses. I did that for circa 15 years. And uh, it was actually my kind of one of my former chairmen, a guy called Lord Robin Hodgson, who was a chairman of Nova Capital, where I was a partner at that firm. And uh, Robin used to come in every single morning and he used to say to me, did you know, this population keeps on growing and we're not building enough housing. And every day he'd come into the office and say, we've not built enough houses, we've not built enough houses. And so that thought around real estate in terms of understanding what's going on in the marketplace was, was in my brain kind of quite early on. But in my kind of early 40s, I wanted to take on some other roles and experiences as, as a non-exec director and, and pass on some of the skills I'd learned over 15 years. And that's how I came across Regal London and the two founders, uh, Paul and, and Simon, who uh, I've known for a long, long time. Paul was one of my oldest friends and, and Simon I'd known for 15 plus years. And it was a perchance chance conversation over dinner where they said to me, Hey Johnny, you've been spending the last kind of twenty years kind of working with companies and understanding how you can build and grow these businesses. Mm. We'd love you to come in and take a look at our business that we've been building over the last kind of fifteen years. And I said, well, I, I think what you're asking for is for a strategic review. They said, well, I'm not sure what that means, but you know, if you're saying you come in and kick the tires and lift up the bonnet and have a look at the business, you know, we're very happy for you to do so. Did they mean it? They very much meant it. They were. They are and continue to be two very ambitious individuals, they are out of the old school buccaneering, kind of swashbuckling real estate guys.
0: So that's not the antithesis of your legal experience in murders and executions.
1: So that was exactly kind of the point. That they wanted someone <laughs> to come in with a, a totally different lens Okay. And look at the business from a perhaps more of a corporate perspective. Sometimes
0: people say that. They don't always mean it.
1: Well, the fact that I'm here seven years <laughs> later would perhaps suggest <laughs> yeah. that they did mean it. And but and, and honestly, I, I wrote a review and I said, listen, here are 30 things I do with the business. Or do absolutely nothing. You've got a nice business, you're a specialist, high-end residential developer, and you've got a small team, and you can keep growing and but take no real risks, etc. Or if you really want to kind of build this platform and we'll come and maybe talk about it, that they would made some amazing decisions, but actually what they needed to do was kind of knit together the business into a whole kind of fully functional kind of operating platform. And it was obvious to me at that time that there was an enormous amount of institutional capital coming into the market space. But actually if we could marry the entrepreneurial aspect of the business and create the right structures and process around the business, it would give us the ability to grow and move forward with a, perhaps a, a more dynamic strategy. Yeah, And, um, That was a journey I started. And having done that review, they said, well, actually, we agree with 29 out of the 30 things you said, but in fairness, we've got no idea how to implement this. Would you be willing to kind of come on board and and kind of start that process? And actually, it was exactly the point in my career where I said, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to kind of help you on that journey and join the business as as a non-exec. But then my journey goes from there, which is I became the most non non executive director there ever you know existed. I found myself leading. Are you in the a
0: business. control freak, or does stuff just come
1: to you? I probably am a control freak. Um, but what I realized was that the journey we'd kind of set off was was actually required me to really kind of help knit together different aspects of the business, whether it was kind of from my, our IT solutions to our staff, to our processes. Well, I guess that's the thing with
0: lawyers is detail matters, It's detail right? stuff. So I, I had to get
1: my hands much more dirty into the business, but ensuring that I you know, I had enormous respect for these two founders. You know, This was their business. They were the entrepreneurs at 16, 17, 18 years old that started out with nothing on the table saying, how can we build this business? And I've always said to my colleagues that we're doing the easy bit, right? The easy bit of taking a business from B to C is much harder than from taking it from A to B. And so um, that's where I am today.
0: So what was the one thing they didn't agree with?
1: I couldn't possibly say
0: that. (laughs) Well, tell me three of the things that you listed that you've done and accomplished in seven years. What three of the most exciting things that you've done in that time?
1: I think that, um, you know, straight off the bat, we very much evolved the strategy from saying, hey, we're just a residential developer. And why was that? So... When I first sat in my kind of first land meeting, I sat around the table and the head of land says, uh, I've got this unbelievable deal. It's like, well, this is exciting. He goes, uh, it's off market. I'm like, oh my, this is fantastic. He goes through the deal. And then he starts talking about some other parties involved. And for me, from a more of a traditional background, an off market deal means you're having a one-on-one conversation. I said, excuse me, how many people are actually looking at this? He said, there were only 15 people. So so that's an off-market deal. So what's an on-market deal? The entire world is going to look at that. And for us, it was a bit of a moment that says, if we're trying to find any specific (laughs) sites, then actually we're too narrow. And actually, if we can buy land, get planning, build it, sell it, do all the things that we do, then why are we not actually looking at optimizing our approach to our land strategy? In other words, saying, here's a site. What actually is the best use class on that site? What can we deliver? How do we maximize our returns and let's deliver that forward? And that was a, probably the biggest moment in terms of when we delivered out our Shoreditch exchange scheme, which was a true mixed-use scheme, 120,000 square feet of commercial office space, build-to-rent, private sale, affordable workspace, all-in-one placemaking site. It became very obvious to us that our skill sets, albeit coming from a high-end residential developer, our quality and product is all yeah. important to us, so we could bring that into other markets and other sectors and broaden our approach.
0: And how do you think about, when you talk about returns, does that change project to project, depending on the on the capital partner? How do you think about these things?
1: What we don't have is a kind of a one-size-fits-all capital strategy because we don't have a one-size-fits-all, this is all we do. So you don't
0: look at stuff and think, okay, everything needs to be an 18% IRR?
1: What we look at is we'll look at different deals, look at those returns, look at the investment approach. Are we going to forward fund that? Are we going to bring BTR into that scheme? Are we yeah. going to take a student scheme? So different schemes will have different dynamics. I think our skill set is be able to it is that ability to look at a site and understand the local dynamics and understand what is the best way to bring that product forward. Because we've never sat on a planning consent in 24 years of our history. We only look out when we look to buy a piece of land, we are looking to deliver that out because the business has its own delivery model. We don't build for anyone else other than ourselves. And that's something that I think is what's so exciting about what the guys have done over the last kind of 20 plus years is actually for a business of our size to have our own construction capability, for a business of our size to have our own sales capability, then actually we can actually do been doing a lot more than just delivering residential units.
0: Yeah, and then lots of businesses, I mean, lots of companies that we've worked with over the years and that have sat in this chair talk about vertical integration and it's become this this buzzword, this buzz phrase, particularly for the private equity-backed real estate firms in BuildTrain, in student housing, everything's that vertically integrated. But actually this integration of those, what some would say, is per- are peripheral functions that obviously are not.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it is correct to look at it from a kind of a sectorization perspective. We worked out that actually buying land in London is pretty damn difficult. So actually, if you're sitting there on kind of one sector, one space, you're minimizing the pool of opportunities you have. Yeah. And I think if you see our portfolio today, whether we've got commercial, retail, hotels, logistics, student, etc., then we've been able to over the last few years, you know, expand our portfolio and expand our skill set.
0: And where would you like it to be? Because Regal, for better or worse, is seen as a savvy, high-end resi developer, certain parts of North London, and that's been very good at spotting sites that are going to have that appeal and that are going to have that gentrification upside in a few years. And that's essentially what the business is known for.
1: First of all, we consider ourselves to be a agile real estate developer, as opposed to. You know, some people have called us a house builder, for example. We're not focused, we don't have a KP on our business that says we're trying to live X number of kind of beds per year. We're all Londoners, we're a London focused business. We see the continued regeneration of London in all varieties of pockets of areas. And we think that where people where they want to live, where they want to work, and I know it's all very buzzworthy, placemaking at the moment, but we genuinely believe that that actually we can bring great products and we can bring great solutions into sites that are extremely difficult to unlock. And at the same time, we're all about a partnership model. So we like to partner with landowners and stakeholders to use effectively our skill set as a menu of choices. How do you want to work with Redor? Should we build it? Should we sell it? Do you want to partner with this? Should we buy it off you? Should we invest in it? We feel that flexibility is the way that one can kind of, you know, ability to build and grow our own kind of portfolio. So what does
0: that mean? It means acting as a development manager on more sites?
1: Well, we only invest in our own schemes along with the investors, so we'll always be both the investor but also the development manager. But I mean, our for schemes. other people, were you looking
0: to contract out those services and say, hey, we'll just be the DM for you on this site? Is no.
1: That- so we certainly don't have a kind of DM-only model, but our DM services will always be part of a wider package in terms of how we look to interact with developers.
0: In terms of, I mean, let's sort of take apart the different bits of the puzzle in terms of the asset exposure... With everything that you're seeing now, and we've been seeing over the last two or three years in urban logistics, particularly on the periphery of London, is that an area where, I mean, it's quite as sexy as high-end resi, is it? Let's be frank. Is that But the returns obviously are in some respects. How much do you want to be
1: exposed to some of these sorts of sectors? It's not a question of how much we want to be exposed. It's a question of, given our mixed-use strategy, when we're looking at schemes... That we're bringing forward that have a components of industrial or components of student or components of residential, et cetera, is trying to marry what we think are those best uses. Yeah. We've seen the social demand of delivery to one's doorstep. We all appreciate where logistics has got to in terms of in marketplace. If I'm delivering a scheme, for example, we're soon to deliver a scheme in Wembley, for example, which will have significant industrial space to it. I mean, that's a fantastic additive to yeah. an overall larger scheme. That's how we tend to think about it, which is.
0: It tends to work better than St. John's Word.
1: Well, St. John's Wood is different. I mean, if yeah. I look at St. John's Wood, you know, this was a... We need
0: we sort of need, you need, to, we need different sorts of logistics, don't
1: you? Well, with St. John's Wood, we've delivered an amazing solution to a site that effectively was crumbling down, an old-age care home managed by a charity called Central and Cecil. And through a joint venture relationship, we've basically taken down the site, delivered a brand-new state-of-the-art care home, mm. along with a private residential unit to go with it. So that's a true example of how we'd look to work in partnership, whether it's with a charity, whether it's local authority, whether it's yeah. with a private landlord.
0: But I think the point I was making was that there will be sites that lend themselves very well to a co-location approach For sure. where you can put some light industrial on the bottom, particularly as people move towards electric vehicles and this sort of sense of living above gas-guzzling HGVs dies away, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, this kind of probably takes us into kind of, you know, where the market's evolving and... You know, mm. we've seen this enormous kind of what I call kind of a BTR arms race to of amenity, you know, which is,
0: arms race, yeah. I think that's a phrase you know, that we coined actually. But. There
1: you go, which is, you know, how stickable are we as a rental nation? And and will people go from the next great toys or the next great schemes, et cetera? We don't really think like that. if we see, for example, btr elements of our scheme we're going to engage with the btr market and and look to essentially say hey you can take this part of the development for your rental product Mm. so we're not a lot of renters in
0: your buildings anyway i mean a lot of your buyers historically have been investment buyers haven't they
1: um mix i'd say i don't know what the statistic is but um i feel we have a lot of significant portion of our buyers yeah and and and
0: there'll be a lot and and i'm guessing some of your sites like the ones that are more core north london will be far more owner-occupied than, than others. And that's exactly. just the nature, a nature. of the geography of housing, right? Yeah. But, I mean, your, your point stands, I think. I, I think, ultimately, I think where we've seen in the marketplace with different build-to-rent investors is it, it's understanding the markets that they're in, and there's the customer base, understands the product and as the investors understand the customer base better, you can curate the right things. And you might know actually in St. John's Wood, people aren't going to want a running track on the roof because there's a lovely David Lloyd up the road.
1: And we love sitting in the middle of that. I mean, that's kind of where we kind of see our kind of market position is, you know, yeah. we're not trying to grab market share from different sectors. We're saying kind of we operate in this mixed use position, sitting in this London market, trying to find the right solutions for the right investors and the right So what, right what, what
0: do you want your role to be for taking something like Build to Rent? What do you want regal's role to be are you going to be the guys that find the land developers and go to invest
1: go to mng's hey M&G, hey mng hey ms hey legal in general we've got this site we think it could work for you the good news is it's the other way around at the moment these guys are all coming to us saying hey we'd love to be taking blocks off you for build to rent etc so it's a two-way relationship we understand what the build to rent market's looking for and what they're trying to achieve and when we're looking to evaluate our own so which schemes. companies
0: are you in talk to at the minute then?
1: again i wouldn't want to kind of you know <laughs> reference specific companies but we think there are some really exciting companies out there, exciting product that kind of works within the type of schemes that we want to deliver.
0: How are you going to have to amend or change your product for that kind of market? Because what Regal is seen to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, but it is seen as, as largely a, a developer of high-end resi.
1: So it's just, I think you're, you're absolutely bang on in, in that respect, that our products... And our quality is something that runs through the DNA and veins of the founders of the business in terms of where we've yeah. come from. So when we're putting in swimming pools and we're putting in jacuzzis and we're putting in spa rooms and cinema rooms, believe it or not, like this is like kind of through our DNA. We've done this a million times because we've done it actually kind of in a much more kind of localized single housing Oh yeah, but well,
0: leisure is an absolute nightmare to operate in an ongoing rental building, isn't it? And that's the thing that's in terms of the costs and the
1: risks? We feel that, that, you know, we have all of that. We've got a lot of skill and understanding about bringing those type of amenities and products and making sure that they are delivered at the right costs, etc. Well,
0: what about the operation? Because that's, again, that's a different game, isn't it?
1: I think, uh, you know, operating amenity is something that we're very used to and something that we're familiar with in both our existing schemes and new schemes coming forward. And mm. clearly, like any market, there are good operators and not so good operators. And so, so
0: are you looking at, just to be clear, are you, is that something you're looking at bringing in? Are you looking at having an operation elements to your business that could operate rentals. So, so we already have that.
1: So, if, is, is, you know, we still have our responsibilities when delivering our products to our clients for latent defect periods and the like. So we have a fully kind of integrated customer care and asset management team. So for us, the question is kind of, you know, where will we find ourselves in the BTR space? And if that was the case where we were running and operating our own schemes going forward as opposed to for sale or financing out the schemes we would look to simply kind of expand our own operations. For us, our brand is key, right? So if we're going to kind of bring mixed-use tenure into our skins with our product, then we've got to be comfortable that both the product is right but the operational go forward is is what we would expect.
0: Mm. And where do you sit on the commercial side then? Because obviously there's a like different schools of thought on the future offices depending on mm-hmm. who you are and what generation you're from. Be it, I'd say actually a lot of the guys here that we have in Black sock team have been very good at sticking with the offices, and I'm, you know, I'm surprised when I hear uh, about some large property companies and trade bodies that are in the office once a week, which does strike me as so somewhat. I, I
1: totally appreciate the debate that is currently ongoing around flexible working, working from home, and the changing culture around kind of our working environment, and I'm very live to all of that. What I can say is I only can talk about our own personal experiences that, yeah, yeah. We, we managed a business remotely online when kind of our head office was closed, but all of our sites uh, remained open during that period of time. And we had to manage our staff in a way which was, you know, we really had to engage with them, right? We had to get into their mental health around kind of working from home and actually really touching them every day and and bring a bit of kind of fun and, and in terms of the environment we had. But... In our business, the way we operate, because there are so many moving parts, the jigsaw puzzles that we're considering every day, we are inevitably better all together as a team working together as a group of people. And so our staff literally ran back into the office as quickly as they could, as opposed to saying, actually, we want to work from home. Actually, you know, Jonathan, would it be okay now that actually I do my job? We literally had none of that. We've been a much more... the lawyer
0: when you didn't think that was a bit risky? Well, no, we listen. (laughs) The, The lawyer
1: in me says that, you know, we weren't going to be the first person to say, hey, if you want to be flexible, don't come back to the office again. Don't get me wrong. But we were very encouraging of our staff. But
0: Twitter changed their mind very quickly on that statement, didn't they? It It, was was a few months later, they said, actually, that's a bad idea.
1: Well, so all I can say is from my own experience is our staff were very keen to kind of come back together and create that kind of environment. I've spoken to lots of colleagues outside of my own industry around kind of work from home issue, particularly the lawyers, by the way, who just have been stuck in the office for 2000 years. So I'm not surprised that they kind of want to get out of the office now. But other than the kind of legal community that's had, I think, a major rethink around kind of how they work in terms of their offices, Mm. I don't know how you train your staff. I don't know how you grow. I look at the different junctures in my own career and the different decisions that I took and all the things I learned.
0: You did that through osmosis, right? I did
1: that through osmosis. And so I don't want to sit here as like, you know, everyone needs to get back to the office because I understand the debate and the issue. But I believe that certain businesses, and ours being specific, that Mm. we are so much better and more um, efficient as we are when we're together than working from home.
0: But in terms of stuff you're building, how do you convince the market that you're suddenly able and the right party to be developing offices?
1: So you know, when we look at offices, you know, we're looking at the, probably at two areas at the moment. The first area is how we think about how people want to kind of work going forward, and it's clear that you know. The hot desking kind of environment and, and the environment that you're trying to bring needs to kind of marry very much to maybe some of the mixed use elements of, of what we're bringing on those schemes. But for me, uh, actually, it's all about sustainability. And I know that's like an enormous word, but you know, if we're going to bring forward, you know, any commercial schemes, then we're at the moment looking at how we can get to the highest standards of BRIAM outstanding and bring buildings that are operational, going forward, that people will want to work in because they recognise these buildings are actually not harming the environment and, and being feel that there are productive places to work. So I'd say that they're the two areas that occupy us, kind of our minds in terms of the space that we're developing versus kind of the environment and the operational performance of that asset going forward. Yeah, And yeah. maybe, you know, we have a mixed use scheme we're bringing in Watford, in Clarendon Road, which will be a, a residential tower with office. And, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to actually have a, a BRIAM Outstanding Building in Watford. Now, I think there are only, I've only heard of kind of three Bream Outstanding Buildings in, in central London Yet we're this mid-market developer bringing forward commercial assets saying, and considering how we can get to an outstanding level. And that's the mindset of our business in terms of kind of how we think.
0: Yeah. And what is the game plan for the Watford scheme? Is that that's going to be for sale, right?
1: Uh, the product is it's uh, 168 residential units for sale. We launched that in back end of Q3 of last year in London, in the UK and overseas. Our office space will be 120,000 square feet of commercial office space. Our evaluation is there have been Watford, we think, is a very progressive council. There's a lot of redevelopment going on within the Watford centre, town centre. At the same time, there are quite a lot of corporates already operating in Watford itself. There hasn't been a a pre, kind of all of a sudden, post-COVID move to Watford, 14 minutes on the train to central London. We think that uh, if we can bring an outstanding building into the Watford market, then we think there'll be a huge demand tenant occupation in what we think is quite an exciting part of -of out-of-town working
0: yeah no and i think there are these sorts of hubs that you see don't you and places that 15 years ago you wouldn't have really thought actually who's going to live in slough but then you realize that big companies like electronic arts are are in that's what it takes
1: right absolutely it takes the employers to really deliver these areas and i think if we look at watford the likes of you know kpmg pwc tk max you know they've all got presence and other retailers and the fact that it is you know your 12 minutes on the train into central London, I think kind of has that great connectivity, which has allowed corporates to expand and invest in those areas.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, let's talk about a North Finchley scheme. You're from North London, Jonathan, let's, 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 uh, tell us about North Finchley. I'm proud
1: of being from North London. I'm a Tottenham Hotspur Spurs fan, season ticket holder, for those that are listening today. Uh, So yeah, I'm very proud of being part of North London. I think that, um, you know, our North Finchley project is, is no different to any other kind of, town centre in London that we know very well and that really is not a place that people want to go to or shop or kind of enjoy themselves because there isn't the right environment Mm. and what excites us about North Finchley is that everyone can see clearly that actually with a new solution around arts and culture and F&B and restaurants and commercial that actually it's an area that can really transform itself where at the moment a lot of the uh, residents that live close by are migrating to Muswell Hill, Hampstead, Marylebone High Street, wherever it may be. And actually, why not keep that capital and that investment into the local area? Why can't they get out of their houses, take a walk for 10 minutes and have a great environment? So that's what what, we're focused on. So
0: what do you want to talk us with the metrics of the scheme? What are you actually building? What was your vision for it? What are you looking at? What's the the conversation you're having with the local community? Yeah, so the
1: moment is absolutely that. We are engaging with the local community and with the local stakeholders. This opportunity that came around with Barnett's has been going for some years. We actually stepped into the shoes of a former developer that kind of had an arrangement in place. We'd known about it for some time. Was this you and I? This was you and I, yeah. So we stepped in the shoes of that situation, albeit with a new agreement with Barnet in terms of how we were thinking around the scheme. But our vision is generally is a much more kind of softer, easier environment for both transportation and both in terms of cultural and leisure and F&B, an environment that will actually continue to drive people perhaps much more closer to the town centre. It's stretched far too long. It goes on from a long road the North Finchley Road. So it's about actually consolidating the right uses. At the moment, we are really kind of being quite clear, which is there were criticisms we'd heard at the local council around... Why hasn't the developer engaged? Why hasn't the developer listened? So guess what? That's exactly what we're doing right now. We're engaging and we're listening. And once we've got all of that information and we've got a website up there where people want to go visit it as part of Commonplace, we're out there engaging with all of the stakeholders so we can really fully appreciate what people are looking for, what their desires are. And that will then allow us post-elections, obviously, as everyone's aware, we've got the elections coming up, post-elections for us to gather all that intel, gather all that information and try and move forward with a scheme that is going to basically work for the residents and the users of North Finchley. Mm.
0: And would that be your biggest scheme to date?
1: That would be our biggest scheme to date, yeah. yeah. But not necessarily our biggest scheme that's in our current pipeline.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about the wider pipeline and what else is coming up? Because you've got quite a broad array of projects in the canon.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously North Finchley is a a big urban regeneration project. I would say... um, We have a scheme called Orchard Wharf that's in planning at the moment, which we've been working very closely with. It's a protected wharf. It is. It's a safeguarded wharf. And we felt that we could unlock the situation with the stakeholders, given our delivery model. So we did a a safeguarded
0: wharf, just for anyone that thinks we're talking about wild animals, is... uh, Think
1: anaerobic uh, digestion plants. Think uh, construction (laughs) materials. Thinking noise. Think about things that get crushed. Think about things that perhaps don't lend themselves so well to... Residential developments and all these things that are going on around the whole of the city. But the protections
0: were taken off several years ago by the Mayor of London, and that enabled them to essentially be developed for Resi. And uh, there was a piece of research that we did on this. forty eight Week featured City Aim, London Standard featured it, looking at the potential numbers. I and mean, the, the numbers were astonishing. Astonishing, we, we did, aren't
1: they? They really are. Um, and so we felt exactly the same, which is actually, you've got this land sitting there, what can you do with it? And we did a transaction with the PLC to essentially buy the land subject to us getting the planning. And I'll never forget my first meeting with the Port of London Authority and realized very quickly that they were really clear around kind of what they expected in terms of the redevelopment of these wolves. And as you quite rightly say, you know, recognizing there is development a potential opportunity. But the one key piece that was, is and will be important to the scheme going forward is actually bringing product down the river. And for us, there was a little bit of a light bulb moment that actually the previous parties had been talking about anaerobic digestion plants, concrete batching plants, and trying to establish why this piece of land wasn't able to deliver those type of solutions. Well, we looked at it with a different lens. Well, so what are we talking about here? What are the restrictions of the wharf? What is required? And is it about bringing product on the river onto the wharf? We get it. That's trying to use the river as a transportation process. Now, this was kind of going back before COVID, before placemaking, etc. And the light bulb moment was if the requirements to use the wharf is to bring product down the river, then what's wrong with a last mile logistics hub? Mm. And that was essentially the light bulb moment where the Portland Authority said there's absolutely nothing wrong with a last mile logistics hub. And that was what we pivoted off saying, actually, what if this was a last mile logistics use? Think about the sustainable benefits of bringing product to a river into central London and be able to then unlock a development scheme above. And at the moment, where we are on that transaction is that we're engaging with tower hamlets to effectively try and move forward with our planning application the scheme
0: so one of the must be one of the first river-based last mile hubs in london
1: it will probably be the first true sheds and bed scheme that really kind of truly exists and kind of happens and yeah we're very excited about bringing that forward how um, many beds will that entail at the moment we're still talking with tower hamlets about how many beds it will entail
0: yeah well you know I mean, it beats living on a barge i've always kind of I'm far too messy to live on a boat, but yeah, like I guess so. it's... I think what
1: Ballymore have developed as a giant is absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, we, we take the hat off to kind of, you know, what they do. And I suppose for us, we're, we're slightly piggybacking on the placemaking that they brought through, but this is an incredibly complex situation. So we're hoping that, you know, what we'll bring will be incredibly additive to the area. And, you know, we're really excited about it.
0: Mm. So you've got a pipeline of 4,500 resi units. There's a considerable amount of development potential. What does the future look like? So what does the next five years look like for you in terms of where you move the business to? We've talked about build to rent. We've talked about shifting to offices and, and logistics. Are you looking, for example, would you be looking to create your own fund to take some of these things forward? You've got the development potential. You, you've got the construction skills. And that's 95% the problem, really, isn't it? You're I, obviously pretty good at raising capital.
1: I think that we are conscious about overtrading. Because you know, the type of things we've just speaking about, you know, I appreciate how much work and how much involvement is required to deliver out those schemes and you know, it is a very complex in what we do. So we're conscious around kind of ensuring that what we take forward, that we've got the skills and capability and the bandwidth as any business looks to grow over time. I mean, what does the future look like for us? I mean, since I've been at Regal, I've never known the economy or the environment to be so unstable. And why do I say this is because essentially, when we're talking to investors, we have to understand what's going on in the macro world out there. Yeah, and I guess the, and the downside
0: of having a construction arm um, is that there's no b theres not there, isn't there? There is
1: no I think that's right. But what we have is optionality, right? Which is, you know, if I take, for example, our commercial road hotel, part hotel that we delivered for State City last year, which we delivered in, in PC during COVID and, and sold that building on. Now, that original thought process of that asset was going to be an office. But actually, we through continual work and appraisals we figured out actually a part hotel was actually the best solution for that mm. so i see regal kind of being a solution trying to solve solutions whether it's what we spoke about at Ultra wharf yeah that's where i see us i see if i say that as i said from brexit to covid and we're sitting here today with war going on in eastern europe you know we live in really really uncertain times and for us that means that we are cautiously optimistic about the future but we're cautious around ensuring that what we do and what we deliver we can really deliver that through and that requires a lot of micro work and analysis in order to make sure that we can continue moving the business forward
0: well that's a, it's a great way to end i mean the detail matters and that's fantastic but looking forward to seeing an North Finchley project looking forward to seeing the uh floating sheds coming forward some fantastic ideas there and, and i think you know a lot of people in the market will be very welcome to see regal london coming out and lifting that lid a little bit more and hopefully sharing a bit of the magic to us with other people so thanks very much jonathan seal for, for coming on to bosscast lovely to see you uh you can subscribe to to propcast on apple on spotify on soundcloud Just search propcast online thank you uh, to, to regal and i've been andrew teacher from blackstock consulting thank you we'll see you again soon Bye bye